Well, good morning. Hope you all slept well, slept well tonight, or last night, I should say. Um, <clears throat> my allergy is a little bit rough today, so uh, it sounds a little hoarse. I apologize for that, but uh, uh, it's a little less humid today, praise God, uh, and uh, got a good night's sleep, so I'm grateful for that. Um, good to see you all, and uh, pray that you had a wonderful, blessed Lord's Day yesterday. I'm sure you had good services here. And uh, enjoyed being with you yesterday morning. You can't wait to, to dive into Deuteronomy today. So uh, it's exciting. All right. Well, anything we need to pray about this morning? All hearts clear? All right. Well, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. And we thank you, God, for your grace and your peace. We thank you, God, that you, you love us. You see us as we are. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know everything about us, and, and Lord, it's amazing that you love us anyway. And so, Lord, we're grateful for your grace. We thank you, God, for your presence. And Lord, I thank you that we could be together today. And I know that, um, that there's just so many things in this world that can distract us. And Lord, help us just for these uh, few minutes to focus on your word. And Lord, again, we thank you for, your, for, for being with us today. And we give you this time as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, today we're going to, uh, are we working? I don't see any light. Okay, all right. So we'll hold on. There's, I got one more. They went fast today. <laughs> yeah, that. <clears throat> uh, well, just uh, to let you know, I know that... Uh, so people are coming and going each day, and I understand that. And uh, all the extra copies I had from yesterday are, are gone. Uh, so I will, make, I will make some more for all the days, okay? And they'll be up here in the front. If you're missing one, just come up and get it uh, during the week, all right? And I'll do that as they, they run out. I'll make more each week, okay, each day, okay? I don't want to make too many because I don't want to waste paper, you know. But uh, I'll make a few and put them up here. If they disappear, I'll make some more. Okay, so, uh, I th oh, I did? Well, there is one more. Okay, then. Great. Right behind you. You're welcome. All right, well, to this morning we're going to be looking at, you know, God's love in the Old Testament. We've been talking about that the whole time, Will, all the way through. We've been tracking from Genesis all the way till the end. In fact, next Sunday we'll actually look at Matthew 1.1. To see how the New Testament brings this idea of God's love and the, 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 the idea of the love in Messiah in this one verse. Of course, we'll unpack that verse and go back and see multiple verses in the Old Testament that it's referring to. Okay? So we're going to move all the way through the Old Testament piece by piece. Yesterday I covered the entire book of, Num uh, of Exodus, which I won't do today. Okay? Uh, just nine verses in Deuteronomy. But um, while we're waiting for the screen to come up, uh, I just want to give you a little background on Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the capstone of what is called the Torah. It's the fifth book of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, uh, but is a capstone. It is really uh, designed to show us Moses' last words, Moses' last uh, messages, his last, uh, some people call them sermons, last speeches to the people. It's been 38 years since they left 
left uh, Mount Sinai. We, we, if, if you know the story very well, you know that when they left Mount Sinai, they began to grumble again and complain again, and they, they were just uh, horrible. And then when they were supposed to go into the promised land to begin with, they all got afraid and said, no, we can't do this. We're not going to do it. And God says, okay, you don't want to go in now. You're not going to go in. You're going to wander in this wilderness, and you're all going to die here, and your kids will go in. And they said, oh, no. And so they go ahead and try to force their way in, and they got defeated. And so they end up wandering in the wilderness for another 38 years, for a total of 40 years in the wilderness. Now, as they wandered, they, God took care of them. His grace was sufficient for them. He, they, he gave them food every day. He gave them water to drink. The Bible tells us that their clothes never wore out. Their sandals never wore out. 40 years wandering in the wilderness. That's an amazing thing that their clothes and shoes did not wear out. That is God's grace to them. But yet they begin to die off from old age. And they gave birth to children, and their children grew up. And these are the folks that, that uh, Moses is speaking to in Deuteronomy. He's speaking to these children who were not there. Most of them, those who were under 20 when they left, were allowed to go in. But those over 20 were now dead. Okay, when they left Egypt. And so, so the, Moses is trying to teach them, this is what's happened, how God brought us out of Egypt, how God brought us and gave us the law. And he recounts the law. Deuteronomy literally means second law. He gives the Ten Commandments over again. He explains to them everything about who God is and what he has done for them. And then he gives his sermons on what they need to do when they go into the promised land, what they need to know, what they need to understand. And so that's what we're going to look at today is where it begins in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. But we need to review a couple of things. I noticed yesterday, uh, it, it occurred to me, and it, it, someone mentioned it to me, uh, that not everybody was here the first day, of course, and not everybody's here the second day and everything else. And so I probably need to review a few things. Uh, as far as what words mean and those types of things. So uh, I, I mentioned chesed quite a bit in these lessons because this is about that tender loving mercy of God that flows from Genesis all the way into the New Testament. And chesed is this love that is a tender, it's often translated tender loving mercies of God. It's translated grace, and uh, translated compassion, mercy, all different ways, every way but the word love. And so this is the primary way God's love is explained in the Old Testament, but yet rarely do we translate it love. And so when we read the Old Testament, we think there is no love in the Old Testament because this word is not translated love very often. And so chesed is really the essence of God's character. God is merciful. God is gracious. God cares. God is present. God's presence is a blessing to us. Actually, the word blessing, the primary word meaning of blessing and meaning of grace, those two words, is presence. Grace is God's presence. We often think of grace as something he takes out of, of God takes out of his pocket and say, okay, I'll give you a little grace today. I'll give you a little grace today. That's not it. Grace is not a thing other than God with us. 
So literally, when we ask grace for a meal, the original meaning of that was inviting God to be present in our meal, in our conversation around the table, and, and, and in our eating together. That's what the word grace was supposed to mean when we say grace. Yes, thankful that he's given us this food. But literally, be with us in this meal. Enjoy this meal with us. We talked about this idea of covenant and this agreement. Part of it is the agreement to eat together. To eat together, you must want to be together. You must want to enjoy each other's company. And therefore, covenant, God says, I want to enjoy your company. I want to eat with you. I want to be with you. I want to live with you every day. And this is the essence of hesed. It's this idea of his presence and his mercy and his grace. It's a love that will not let go or give up on us. This does not mean that we cannot lose our salvation. What it means is even if we do, God will not stop loving us and wooing us to come back to him. God never says, I've had enough of you. Or I've had enough of you. God never says that. God says, I don't care what you've done. I don't care how bad you have been. I don't care where you have gone. All I care about is that you come to know me again and know my love and grace and forgiveness that I want to give you. That's hesed. Then shalom. Shalom, peace is the way we usually understood shalom. We all have heard the word shalom. Uh, Shalom is usually translated peace. But in our context, we think of peace as the absence of conflict. That's basically what we think of as peace, the absence of conflict. Literally, peace, shalom, is much more than that. Shalom can be translated wholeness, completeness, health, prosperity of purpose. Uh, one of the verses people love so much is, uh, is Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans for hope and a future. The word prosper is actually the word shalom in Hebrew. In that verse, prosperity, though, is not financial in Scripture. It is having enough. But God is always more concerned about our prospering in our purpose. Are we fulfilling our purpose? If we are living the life we're supposed to live and doing what He's called us to do, we will be prosperous in the soul and our heart, be content, be happy. And the intent of shalom is this idea of wholeness and contentment and happiness, okay? So these are God's desires that we would know that love that he has for us and that we would know this shalom, this peace, this wholeness, this completeness that God wants us to have. It's hard to be content these days, is it not? There's so many screaming voices at us telling that we should be angry, yes? There's so many things that tell us that our stuff isn't good enough. You turn on the TV, all you got to do is watch one advertisement, and I find out my car's not good enough, my clothes aren't good enough, I'm not good enough, my face is not good enough, my hair's not good enough, my gray hair's, I got to have some, dye my hair black, because my gray hair's not good enough, I'm not good enough, ah, I got to spend money. You know, that's our world today. It's hard to be content in this world. But God wants us to know true contentment, and that's in him and him alone, and the fulfillment of our purpose. So let's move on. So the Shema. The Shema, Shema is another Hebrew word that I'm going to teach you today. 
It means to hear or obey. It's translated both ways. Because Shema is much more than just hearing. We all can hear, can't we? But do we always listen? Sometimes I, I, I tell my students, sometimes I think, you know, I'll ask a question about something I just told them. I say, sometimes I think the, it goes in one ear and out the other. That ever happened to you? It happens to me all the time, especially the older I get. You know, I don't know how many of you told me your name yesterday, and this morning I'm thinking, where'd it go? I don't remember him. I'm embarrassed about it. But this is an idea of hearing with our ears, okay, hearing with our ears, listening with our minds and our hearts, and then acting on what we hear. Is intensive, present listening. Being in the place where you're being spoken to. Being intent on what you're listening to. Being intent on, in this case, the voice of God. Listening closely. Ears open and listening with your ears and with your eyes to see what God is saying. And with your gut to feel what God is saying. And then to act on it. Does that make sense? Okay, so that is the word Shema. Shema, the Shema itself, these two verses, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, these verses are used over and over again, and we'll talk about this in just a second, in Jewish history. This has been the most important two verses. This is the John 3.16 of the Jewish faith. Okay? John 16. Hear, O Israel, Shema, O Yisrael. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That second verse probably sounds familiar. Yes? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. All right? So this is the Shema. This is used in Jewish faith, has been used for centuries. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. So again, as the capstone of the Torah, the Pentateuch, uh, Israel at the, by this time is at the Jordan River. They have finished their, their wanderings. They have come to the edge of the Jordan River. They're actually in modern-day Jordan today. And what the plains of Moab is where, where the plains of Moab are. Moab is in modern-day Jordan. It is just north of the Dead Sea. If you can picture in your mind a map, and I should have put a map on here. I'll put a map on here uh, on, oh, we won't have it tomorrow, but Wednesday. On there so you can see this. But uh, just north of the Dead Sea, east of the Jordan River. And they can see Jericho just right over there. They can see over down this way, the Dead Sea. And they're on the plains of Moab, clear down in the Rift Valley the Jordan Rift Valley, and literally they are at, at that time, probably about 1,100 feet below sea level. The Dead Sea now is about 1,350 feet below sea level. It's hot, it's oppressive, it's nasty. I've been there a lot of times. I love it, but it's nasty. I won't get into it. But it's, it's, it's a beautiful place to be for a short time. Put it that way. But they're there for a little while. And so they are there, and Moses gives his last lessons, last sermons. 
And he tells him, and he teaches the children of those who left Egypt but were not allowed to enter, as I mentioned before. That these words are to those who did not know Egypt primarily. They knew the stories of Egypt. They knew the stories of a Passover. They knew the stories of the plagues. But they did not experience it themselves. Most of these people had not been at Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments were given. So they heard the stories. They knew all about it. They saw the Ark of the Covenant after they made the tabernacle. They saw every, all that stuff. But they, didn't, they weren't there. So Moses wants to give them a firsthand account from God's perspective of what they need to know. And then Moses died on Mount Nebo, which again is in modern-day Jordan, up on top of the mountain. So here's, they are down in the valley, about 1,100 below, feet below sea level. Mount Nebo is about 3,000 feet above sea level. So from up here, you can see all the way across the river. You can see all the way across the top of the mountains. You can see actually today from there, you can see the lights of Jerusalem up on the mountaintop on the other side of the river. Uh, you can see everything from up there. But God gives them a supernatural vision because God says, you're not going into the promised land, but I'll show it to you. So from Mount Nebo, God shows him all of the promised land, which is a supernatural. You can't see all of it from there physically. But God supernaturally shows him what he's not going to experience as a reward for his goodness. Of course, he can't go in because of his disobedience. And so it's a, it's a difficult story sometimes we think about Moses. After all he went through, you know, I'm thinking just because he hit a rock with a, with a stick, I think that's a little rough, God, but it's none of my business. But the issue was not the hitting the rock, just regressing a little bit. The issue was not hitting the rock, even though God just told him to speak. It was the fact that he was so angry with the people, and he, his words were, must we give you water all the time? Must we do this miracle for you? And he's taking credit for bringing water from the rock. And that really, in his case, was blasphemy. God alone can do miracles. God alone can do these things. But anyway, moving on. So the Torah, Torah simply means the way the law, but literally it means the teaching. Uh, it's not really law, it's teaching. That's what Torah means, the Torah. means to teach, to, to the teaching that God gives. It includes the law, but this Torah, this teaching was not meant to be legalistic, but to be relational. Let me explain that a little bit. Uh, it provided a code of life. Worship and repentance, sacrifice that allowed a good, holy God to live with an unholy people. God wanted to live in their midst. He wanted to be with them. But here he is, a holy God who is perfect in every way, the only perfect being ever to exist, with a whole bunch of imperfect, grumbling, moaning, groaning, crybabying, sinful people, and he wants to live with them. And that's not going to work out well. Unless there's an agreement. And the Torah is an agreement of the people that they will live according to this code of life to protect their own lives. Because sinful people in the presence of a holy God, it never turns out well. Unless God's grace is supplied to them. 
And so we have to see that this is the intent of the Torah, the law, is to allow this relationship to take place. Is to allow them to, to live together, God with them through the tabernacle, through the cloud, through the, the presence in the tabernacle, within the midst of their camp. That's the only way is that they could live by Torah, by law. The Torah itself is God's chesed love in action. The Torah is not to be a stone around people's necks to say you have to do this, have to do this, have to do this, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. It is to be a blessing that I will be with you. 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 But I want to be with you intimately. And for that to happen, there needs to be some concept of holiness in your midst. Okay? There has to be some context of sacredness in your midst for me to be intimate with you. I will always be with you even when you're a sinner. I will always be with you no matter what. That was a promise he gave Moses on the mountain after Moses begged him to go with him. I will be with you through thick or thin. And so I will always be with you, but I want to be with you intimately. And for that to happen, there has to be a sense of sacred. And so the covenant brings a sacredness to what is going on. So through thousands of years, the Shema has been recited both morning and evening by faithful uh, Jews. That it is a, a ritual, if you will. Uh, this happened even in Jesus' day. Jesus probably did the same thing. He was a good Jewish boy, raised in a good Jewish home. And so he quoted the Shema every morning and every evening before he went to sleep. It became part of who he is. Jesus grew up reciting these verses every morning and every evening. As I said, the Shema shaped much of Jesus' teachings, parables, and actions. This idea of, of hearing the word, listening to it. Thinking about it, why did Jesus speak in parables? When you, hear a, when you hear a riddle or a parable, what do you have to do? You have to think. You have to consider. You have to process. He's trying to force them to think, to hear with their minds, to feel what the images bring to their mind, and then to act on what they hear. He is teaching through the idea of Shema, to actively hear, to actively hear, and to act on what you hear. Then, of course, he takes the second half of Shema and makes it the greatest commandment, correct? What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, of course, he adds mind and strength. Mind is a Greek thought that the Hebrews didn't even think about. But Jesus is talking to a Hellenistic, Hellenisticized, a Greekized Jewishness. So he adds mind. Jesus can add to the scripture. We can't. Okay? Jesus can add to the scripture. Because he's meeting people where they are. They knew what minds were. The Hebrews had no concept of a mind. And so, so he adds that. But that is the greatest commandment. Then he takes another commandment from Leviticus and says the second is like it. And literally that as like it, it means equal to, inseparable from, the first one, love your neighbors yourself. 
So literally the great commandment is love God and love others. It's not two different commandments. Love God and love others. You can't love God without loving others. You can't love others without loving God. Not doing it right anyway. And so this is what Shema is doing, and this is how Jesus uses it in the Gospels. So let's look at the, this, this passage, 1 through 9, together. We'll go verse by verse. I put the verses up on the screen today. Verse 1, these are the commands, decrees, and laws of the, law, the, the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. That's a mouthful. What he's saying is, these words I'm about to tell you are not mine. God has given me these words to tell you. Why? Because you're about to cross over the Jordan, and you're about to go over there, and I want you to know this is what God wants you to know, and this is what God wants you to do when you do cross. Moses begins his retelling of the law with confidence of God's leading. Moses can honestly stand up in front of all these people and say with sincerity and clarity and with conviction, the Lord has given me this word to you. He has confidence of God's presence in what he's saying. He has confidence in all of this. They're about to receive what their ancestors were promised but never received. He wants them to understand. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob were promised this land, but they never received it. The children of Israel in Egypt, they never received it. They, they were looking forward to that land. They were looking forward to that moment. They were looking forward to crossing that river, but they never received it. He wanted them to know the blessing they were about to receive that their ancestors had not. He wanted to take this seriously. He wanted to know, to know what God was giving them. And take it seriously. And don't take it for granted. And so they were about to receive this land. And he wanted them to know what kind of a gift it was. Verse 2. So that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you. So that you may enjoy long life. Here Moses immediately is telling them, and to teach your children. General, generational teaching is important, is it not? When did most of you become Christians? Whenever I ask that question, most everybody says they're children. It's a, it's a known truth that after you turn 12 years of age, the, the, the number of people who become Christian drops to below 40% of those that turn over 12 become Christians. Over 30 it's less than 10% come to, know, come to become Christians. Why? Because we become hardened. So teach your children early. Let the, don't indoctrinate them. You know the difference between indoctrination and teaching, yes? Sometimes we have folks in the church who want me as a Bible teacher to indoctrinate my students that this is what you believe. No, I want to teach them the Bible and let God show them and teach them so they can be their own faith, not mine. So don't indoctrinate them into your own faith. That's what happened to me, to be honest with you. I love my parents. They're wonderful. They did the right thing. They got me in church. But it was their faith that I took. And I didn't know Jesus myself until I was 20 years old. So teach them. 
teach them and let God do his work in them. Okay? That's what he wants us to do. That's what he wants them to do. Teach them. Teach them the law, the decrees. And this law, again, he didn't want them to teach, okay, this is what we do and this is what we don't. I was raised with that too. Okay, you're about to go to school, son. You don't have any friends to do this and 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 this. And this. You're not going to wear this or this or this or this or this or this or this. You're not going to do this or this. You're going to do this and this. You're not going to do this. You're not going to do this. Do, 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 do. I'm like, okay, do I just sit in my seat all day then? Is that what I do? You know, that was never the intent. Legalism was never the intent of what the Torah was about. It was about a way of life, a way of life of living a holy life, a li- living a life that was sacred, that allowed us to have a faithful, honest, face-to-face, without actually seeing God face-to-face, but a, 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 a close relationship with God that is sincere and has nothing to hide. That's always God's desire for us to be in a position with him that we are clear of heart, clear of soul, that we are so in tune with him that we have nothing to hide whatsoever, that we can come to God without any concerns whatsoever, no shame, no, nothing to hide, not, no, oh, God, I did it again. You know, if we do it again, but we're honest about it, it's, you know, he's there for us. You know, he doesn't want us to, to try to hide things. He wants us to live transparently with him. That's what the law was for, to give him that opportunity to be transparent before God. Okay, yes, yes, I messed up, God. I messed up today, God. Forgive me. So he gives them the sacrificial system, which is odd to us. But Paul tells us clearly that the wages of sin is death. And God allows something else to die for our sins so that we can have another chance. That's the beauty of sacrifice. You know, as I mentioned before, go back to the Garden of Eden in chapter 3 of Genesis And what does God give Adam and Eve at the very end? He's sending them out of the garden, never to come back. But he doesn't let them go out in fig leaves, does he? He gives them animal skins to protect them, to give them clothes that will wear and protect them from the wilderness out there that they're going into. And where do animal skins come from? But dead animals. God sacrificed these animals for their sins to give them life and a second chance. So this is what this is all about, is God saying, look, this is what I have done for your family. This is what I've done for your ancestors. This is what I've done for you, and I want to know you as I've known Moses face to face. So I give you this law. I give you this Torah to live by. And if we can live in this community of covenant together, then it's going to be a beautiful thing. The sad thing is, it's never happened the way God wanted it to. Never has. But God is gracious. God is patient. God is kind. God is long-suffering. All the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is who God is. God is all those things. All those things with us. Verse 3, hear Shema, Yisrael, and be careful to obey so that it may go go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey. 
just as the Lord, the God, the God of your ancestors, promised you. These promises are sure but must be accepted. They must be accepted. We have to take the promises with, I hate to say this word, but conditions. God's promises are unconditional, and yet there is responsibility to go with privilege. When God offers us something like salvation, it is a privilege to be a child of God, which then carries responsibility. People of privilege also have responsibility. I'm not getting any, any nothings. You, under, you follow what I'm saying? Okay. It's a privilege to be in God's presence. It's a privilege to be in the Holy Land. It's a privilege to be in the land of promise. It's a privilege to be in relationship with God. It's a privilege to be a chosen child of God. It's a privilege to be a child of God, period. It's a privilege to do this. Therefore, there are responsibilities that go with privilege. And God shares those responsibilities in what he's talking about here. This is our responsibility as a child of God. If you go all the way back to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, God calls Abram and Abraham, and, and, and he tells him, go to a place I will show you. And then verse 3 says, and I will make your family a blessing to all the families of the world. That is a privilege, but then requires a responsibility. Just sitting here, being God's chosen people, is not going to bless anybody. Okay? So I have a responsibility. How does Jesus say that? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. In Acts chapter 1, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. Tomorrow's missions day. Yes? It's exciting. It's exciting. You know, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be in the promised land of God's grace. The blessing is great, but so is the responsibility. And we shouldn't take our responsibilities lightly. We really shouldn't. God's grace, yes, he forgives us of our sins, but does that, as, as, as Paul would say, if, 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 if the more I sin, the more grace abounds, then do I go on sinning so grace might abound? God forbid, he says, and literally in the Greek, God forbid that I would do that. I want to live in a way that pleases this one who has pleased me with salvation. I don't want him to have to forgive me over and over and over again. Again, we're getting into this whole idea of holiness. This idea of holiness in the Old Testament. The word holiness in the Old Testament really means to be separate from, to be set apart from, but to be set apart for what? Not set apart as in, oh, I can't be near you. Oh, it is being separate for God's use, to be willing to be used by God for the betterment of the world, for the building of the kingdom, for, for, for our neighbors, for the lost around us. It is being set apart to be an instrument that is pure, sanctified, worthy of being used in worship. That is what holiness is all about. It's being complete 
we'll talk about that in just a minute. And then we have the Shema. Hear Shema. You want to hear the first verse in Hebrew? Would that be interesting? I don't want to show off. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. That sentence, that verse speaks so much. But it's so simple and so short, we just glide over it. We need to see what is going on in this first verse. Again, we talked about Shema already. The Lord our God, the Lord our God, the Lord our God. We see this over and over again. The Lord our God. He would not be our God if he does not give himself to us to be our God. That we can call him our God is a blessing from God himself. We say we choose Yahweh to be our God. No, we do not. God chooses to reveal himself to us so that we can accept his love. That's our choice, to accept the love he offers anyway. But I don't choose who my God is. I really don't. And literally it comes down to this. Let's be honest. After the sin in the Garden of Eden, it comes down to this. We either worship the true God or we worship self. Because what was the temptation the serpent gave Adam and Eve? But your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And so human temptation is always, I choose what I believe. I choose where I go. I choose what I eat. I choose what church I go to. Preacher. And if you don't preach what I want to hear, I'm out of here. If I don't like the music, I'm out of here. Because it's all about me. That is a sinful nature. All about me. About my rights. Nobody's going to tread on me. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to tell me what I can't do. Nobody's going to tell me what I can do. Nobody's going to tell me anything. Sorry, didn't mean to yell. That's a sinful nature. So true idolatry begins with worship of self. And so I choose to worship money. I choose to worship my job. I choose to worship some sports star. I choose to worship a pastor. Ooh, here's a bad one. I choose to worship the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. Without the Holy Spirit working through it, the Bible is just paper and ink. Just another book. Without God in it, it's just another book. We worship the God of the Bible. Who do we worship? That's the question that this sentence asks. Who do we worship? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The idea of oneness, the idea of a one holy God. Only one God. God is holy, all that they need. God is holy. Integrity in personification. Integrity, the root of integrity is the word integer. Any math people in here, you know what an integer is? A whole number, right? 
a whole number. Integrity is being a whole person. It isn't just being honest in front of other people and telling ourselves lie in our own hearts. It is being a whole person. God is whole. The Trinity is whole, one. And wholeness and completeness, it is perfect. And God calls us to be whole people and not perfect as in the world thinks of perfect. I'll go off on another side tangent here, but I think it's important. The word perfection is a word that's used in our tradition a lot. Perfect love, different ways of understanding perfection. But our world today defines perfection through a a, a Greek philosophy from Plato that says perfection is this ideal that you just can't really get to. It's something you just really can't reach. It is perfect in every way, flawless, beautiful, incredible, perfect, you know. And so we have this idea, and so, so when we go to church, our hair has to be absolutely perfect. And we have on the best clothes, and our tie has to be straight, and we have to look perfectly good. And our kids have to stand right next to us. And we have to have everything perfect because that's our concept of perfection. And it's not the biblical understanding of perfection. Biblical understanding of perfection, actually, Paul's especially, Paul, when he writes his letters, talks about be perfect as, you know, he defines perfection. Through the lens, Paul was an educated man. He went to a, a secular school along with rabbinical school. He knew the philosophy of Aristotle. And he also understood that this idea of perfection and what is in, actually in the Old Testament really kind of goes along with the idea that, that Aristotle was saying. So he uses some of Aristotle's thought and brings it in. And it's a perfection of purpose, not of being. What is our purpose? If our purpose is to be in relationship with God... And to live a life that gives him glory and honor. If our purpose is to fulfill the calling he has given us, if we're doing that and we're doing it the best we can, then literally we are living in perfect love. No matter what we look like, whether I'm wearing jeans and tennis shoes or not, whether I have a big nose. Or even at 63 years old, get zits on my face. Excuse me, acne. I want to be more appropriate. It doesn't matter. Even though I'm overweight, I'm trying to get rid of it. You know, I probably lost 900 pounds in my life. You know what I'm saying? 10 on, 10 off, 10 on, 10 on, 10 on. You know. But I'm doing the best I can what God's called me to do. I'm giving everything I've got to be the best I can be at what I do. The best husband I can be, I'm not the best. But the best father I could be, I'm not the best father that ever lived. The best pastor I can be, and I'm not the best pastor that's ever lived. The best teacher I can be, but I'm not the best teacher that ever lived. Go down the list. Everything I am, everything I'm called to be, I am not the best there ever was. I am not perfect in that way. But I try to fulfill perfectly what God has called me to do. But that takes surrender. Surrender of will. God, I give you everything. 
Let me be your instrument. Let me be who you want me to be. Let me live the life that you've called me to be. Lord, correct me when I'm off going down the wrong track. Whatever it is, God, I give you everything. That's the essence of these verses. Love the Lord your God with what? All. Everything. Surrender. Surrender your desires. Surrender your want to go back. Surrender all your garbage. Surrender your, your pride of being chosen by God, of being Abraham's children. This, this is constant. God is constantly trying to say, I, I can make Abraham's children out of these rocks for crying out loud. Get over it. Surrender all of that garbage and trust me fully. The Shema is incredibly important. Incredibly important for us. Just because we have John 3.16 doesn't mean we don't need this too. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength. The core of all the Torah right here. God is one, only one God. God is holy. And Jesus says multiple times, I and the Father are one. May these you have given me be one with us. May we be one with God. That's Jesus' desire. May we be one as a human being. May we be whole as a human being. May we be whole as a community. May we be whole in our relationship with God. May we be honest with, the, with God with each other. May we be transparent with each other. May we be, be sincere with each other. May we be truly who we say we are as Christians. That's what Jesus is saying using the idea of Shema. Okay? So really without the Shema... Jesus' teachings would be a whole lot different. They'd say the same things, teach the same things importantly, but obviously Jesus saw the Shema as an important aspect of who he is as God. And he brings it into a new context of faith in him, who is God in person. Anybody have any questions or anything, you can stop me. I should have said that the first day, you know. I get, I get to talking and I can't stop, so you stop me, okay? So the oneness of God and God's desire for his people to be one with him and one another. Fill the New Testament teachings of Jesus and the apostles. The Shema informs all believers of God's loving desire for a whole, entire, complete, loving relationship with his creation. The law was not meant to be a legalistic burden, but humans use and used and use it to divide, boast, and judge. To this day, we do this. Love, ahav, the Lord, have affection, desire, and eye toward God with a twinkle in your eye. How often do you have a twinkle in your eye when you think about God? That you want him more than anything, just as much as you love that special one in your life, but more so. Twinkle in your eye with all your heart, soul, and strength. we got to move on. Verse 6, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your heart. The, key command, the commandments are a gift of love from God. To abuse the commands of God is to reject God's love, breaks covenant. If you refuse to live the way God wants us to through this 
idea of community, then you're going to break covenant. God's commands are for, the, for our welfare, our good. His commands are for our wholeness and completeness. His commands are for our welfare, our, the goodness of life is what he wants for us. Verse 7, and impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Literally saying, teach the truth of the Lord to the next generation, keep them close in your own mind and heart, sleep in peace with the knowledge of God's love shared with us by God himself, and share these truths with, your, with, with, with everyone, not you, everyone, but everyone, especially your children. Okay? This is part of living the truth. Living the truth is sharing. Sharing. Eight and nine, fill out, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses, on your gates. The Jews took this literally and still to this day. If you look at pictures of the holy people, the ones dressed in black in Jerusalem, they have this thing stuck on their head right here, and they have things wrapped around their arms. They literally have a little box in both of those places with the Shema inside of it. And then you go by their houses, and they have a box on their door frame. The inside of it is... The Shema. I have one of those boxes on the door of my office because I'm a Hebrew at heart. Because I believe the Shema is important. All right. So Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. One commandment, love God and love others. This is the essence of the Shema. So lessons learned. A loving God calls. All who hear are, are called. So not all. I got in a hurry, sorry. All who hear are called. God is complex, which means he's all-powerful yet all-loving. He is transcendent yet personal. He is love and justice. The man of God is our heart, soul, and strength. Complete surrender to his love is what he calls us to. Love God with all of our emotion, our will, and our intent. Perfect love. The chesed love of God is complex itself, unconditional, but must be accepted. Unconditionally returned to God and others. This is the love that we see in these verses. This love that loves beyond measure that wants us to know him personally. And for that to take place, something has to change inside of us. And for that to change inside of us, for the Hebrews, it was by following the law. But God sending his Holy Spirit to us now, for changes to take place in us, we must surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit. Okay? All right, so no Bible study tomorrow, Missions Day. Wednesday, we'll go into Ruth, the book of Ruth. Uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 23, and we'll look at God's love and relationships. Okay? I know we're past time. Any questions before we go? Anything, any comments? Any concerns? Anybody want to burn me at the stake or anything? All right. All right. Love you all. Take care. See you later.